0: This is Beth and I am so proud of this episode but I'm afraid that the sound quality is not what I would like it to be. I apologize in advance. I hope you'll bear with us because I really want you to listen to this episode with Lyndon from Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon.
1: Hi everybody and welcome to Murder at Bedtime. 15 to 20 minute true crime bedtime story with me, your host Lyndon. No frills, no waffle, no adverts. I hope I can persuade you to listen for a bit to investigate unfaithfulness, poisoning, masochists, British executions. I've got a doozy of an episode for you. So check that out if you fancy it. Please feel free to drop me a line on Instagram. Hope to see you again soon for Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon. And with that, let's crack on. And thank you for listening.
0: Hi everybody, welcome back. This is True Crime b episode 74. And I'm Beth, and today I have a guest host, and that is... This is Lyndon. And Lyndon is my first guest star. He is from north of London in the UK, and he has two YouTube channels and a
1: podcast.
0: Would you jump in and tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I would love to. I have the original podcast, which is Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon, which I started off in the pandemic on Facebook just for about five friends and they said to me have a go at podcasting so i did and fortunately three years later murder at bedtime is doing very very well yes Um, i've got a spin-off youtube channel that i do about a week later of the same episode that doesn't do as well of course because most people listen to me and i think most (laughs) people prefer to listen to me than see me actually (laughs) and then unfortunately for the same audience. I also have a YouTube panel about British folklore, legends and tales where I go walk about as the exiled yellow belly. The explanation for that is I am exiled from my county which is Lincolnshire and a person from Lincolnshire is a yellow belly. Okay. So, I'm yellow belly. I walk around doing these stories with my friend Lynn who is a sensitive and sometimes picks up on the ghosts and things that are around. And I think I've got about, and I've just heard, the true crime put. Okay, she's going to do this five or six times, and I apologise in advance. I think she just thought he's been waffling for so long now. If you want to catch me walking around, I am on YouTube as the exiled Yellow belly, And you can see me wandering around doing strange But <laughs> He's a star of the show uh, in his own right. Or her own right, Sorry. <laughs> I thought, you know, just let her carry on.
0: Lyndon, thank you for showing up here today. I really have been so excited to record with you. I've been listening to you forever, and I want you to be the bad guy today.
1: I really think I suit the bad guy part. Well,
0: why don't you go ahead and get us started today?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to say hi, Beth, again. <laughs> this is a real honor to be on one of my favorite true crime podcasts, True Crime B&B. Now, I know that you and Bailey rotate as the good and the bad, so I'm just going to be the plain old ugly today. I'm going to tell you a story which is very, very famous in this country, in the UK, but I'm not so sure whether your viewers will have heard it in the States, etc. Great. Uh, This is about a pair who became known as the Twilight Killers. It's all the more shocking, as in 2016, when these murders were committed in Spalding, Lincolnshire, which is actually the county of my birth so they were yellow bellies as well oh no um, yeah they were only 14 years old mm-hmm. also it's even more shocking when we get to hear who the victims were
0: i've heard of the twilight killers before but i do not remember offhand what the story is so i'm
1: looking forward to your take on it so i am all ears so On April the 16th, 2016, Lincolnshire Police arrived at the home of 49-year-old Elizabeth Edwards and her daughters, 14-year-old Kim and 13-year-old Katie. After staff at the Sir John Glead School, which I believe is a school for children with problems, alerted them, after Kim and her boyfriend, Lucas Markham, also 14, had not attended the school for a number of days. Now, Lucas's aunt, with whom he lived, had also reported him missing, and staff at Elizabeth Markham's place of work had also alerted the police concerned that she'd not turned up for work for a couple of days, and she'd not rang in sick, which was totally out of character for her. The first inkling that
0: somebody is missing isn't necessarily going to be their family or their significant other, but they've always been reliable. They've always shown up for work and they're not here today and I can't get a hold of them. first person who sounds the alarm is often an employer or a colleague.
1: I think that the police took the call from Elizabeth's employer more seriously than they took the phone call about Kim and lucas because kim and lucas already had a record of running away and into the woods and staying in the woods and not coming out and not being found and then coming back of their own accord so i think the police left it for about 36 hours before they actually did anything because of the employer getting in and saying elizabeth doesn't normally take any time off and if she does she rings in to say she won't be in I think the reason why, yeah, the other two, I think, because there's no doubt about it as you go along the story. Lucas and Kim have got problems to that. okay. So the police go round and they had to enter the home forcibly as no one would answer the door, which they did. And on entering the living room, they found Lucas and Kim on the sofa under a duvet watching twilight on dvd Mm. when the police asked about elizabeth and katie lucas just pointed upwards and said why don't you go and see for yourself on going into elizabeth's bedroom they found she had been stabbed multiple times in the neck and smothered with a pillow entering the next bedroom which kim normally shared with her younger sister katie they found her also dead stabbed multiple times through the throat and also smothered with a pillow, the pillow was still over her face. Oof. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a terrible sight, and as you can already see, they were just quite happily under a duvet, on the sofa, yeah. watching twilight.
0: like nothing had happened.
1: As though nothing had happened, and they'd been in that house for 36 hours with oh. the bodies, so they'd literally gone up to the toilet, past the bedrooms, used the toilet, come downstairs, carried on, whatever they were doing. While the mother and her sister lied there dead in their beds, covered with blood everywhere.
0: It's one of those cases where you just can't help but ask, what the hell is wrong with people?
1: Well, you know, I mean, we'll talk some more about it and you will come to your own conclusions about this probably being a perfect storm. to people where this probably wouldn't have happened if they'd never met. Yeah, okay. um, I'll go back to the story. The pair were arrested and some of their interviews are the most chilling ever heard. They have complete indifference to what's happened. They're completely calm, no problem at all. In fact, they're very, very proud of what they've done. Mm. They calmly talked about how they planned the murders so that when everyone was asleep in the Edwards home, Lucas would come over, tap on the window and Kim would let him in. Now, this was the third attempt because on two previous attempts, Lucas had come over at two o'clock with a bag of knives from his aunt's house and Kim had fallen asleep and didn't let him in. So he went home again. So this was the third attempt when Lucas has come over, tapped on the window, Kim let him in through the window and then everything happened. So as I said, he bought a bag of his aunt's knife and the plan was for Lucas to stab Kim's mother in the voice box to stop her screaming then stabbed her to death. Ew. He, in fact, stabbed her and then held a pillow over her face with his weight on top of her for 10 minutes. Oh my
0: God. After being While,
1: stabbed in the voice box. And then he carried on stabbing her as well. Ugh. And she clawed frantically at him, trying to get him off. So she fought for her life, but unfortunately, she succumbed to her injuries. Because he was but stronger because he wasn't stabbed in the voice box. Stabbed in the voice box just so that she couldn't scream. They'd already made that plan together. They made the plan and then kill her. And that's exactly what Lucas did. It was the plan then for Kim to kill her sister, Katie. But she was overcome with an anxiety attack and said she couldn't do it. And so Lucas did it. And apparently she fortunately, or unfortunately, um, you know, she died instantly. It didn't even look as though she woke up. killed her instantly there was no signs of any struggle and the pillow was still over her face and this was all put down to the fact that Kim was insanely jealous of the relationship that Katie and her mother had and had always been jealous of them and saying that she preferred her sister to her she basically said she had nothing against her sister but she had to die
0: so Lyndon so she wanted to kill both of them only for the reason of jealousy that they were closer than she was with either of
1: them? She wanted to kill her mother because she hated her. Okay. Apparently her excuse for killing her sister was that she didn't want her to suffer with the fact that she'd killed her mother. That's bullshit. So, uh, <laughs> but as you'll see, there is something deeply wrong with Kim. Also, She'd had this panic attack and everything. But why did this happen? It was reported that when she was six years old, Kim was either punched or slapped in a domestic argument by her mother. Now, this is indefensible, as we know. You should never hit your children or punch your children. But Elizabeth, in her defence, reported herself to the social services for doing it. She was so disgusted with herself for doing it. And the children were taken off her for, I think, two to three months. Later on, she passed all the tests and everything, and they realised it was a one-off and the children were returned to her. So then it would seem the relationship from then on, from six years old, became very strained between Kim and her mother. Now, from what I've read on this case, it would seem that Elizabeth Edwards, who apart from the incident when Kim was six which I've said again is indefensible, was a hard working single mother who'd done the best for her three daughters. She had an eldest daughter who moved out of the family home. She had ditched the drunken, abusive father and had just started a new relationship and had tried to get Kim psychological help when she found a suicide note that Kim had written. So there you go. Kim had problems. She was already going to this school four children with problems, and she'd written suicide notes in the past, and her mother was trying to get her help. She yeah. was, and
0: it sounds to me like there was something wrong with her from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, her mom I... sounds like a pretty good mom, and for her yeah. to be, I'm not blaming a victim here, but for her to do something so out of character to slap her child, when that's not something she would normally do, and it was so uncommon she even self-reported it. So she must have been driven to the brink by yeah. something and it sounds to me like maybe the child was just really difficult from the very beginning
1: yeah she shouldn't have slapped or no ever the reporting thing was but it sounds as though even at six kim might have been a problem child she was a hellion and this woman she would got rid of a drunken and abusive husband she tried to get her life in order according to the oldest daughter who'd moved out she was a great mother I mean, she she had no complaints with her at all. she moved out because she was older and she was moving on with her life. But she was a great mother, you know. So I do think the problem was with Kim. As you will find out, Kim's cold reaction to the fact that she's being questioned for, for killing her mother. I mean, her so, sister, well, that's just dreadful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, any of it's
0: dreadful. So no. I, I don't know how a child can basically from... Early childhood, just have no emotional connection to anyone
1: except maybe anger. Is that an emotional connection? I don't know if that counts. Well, I'll read you some more. You know, we'll get to the crux of the matter of what's really going on here. And then you can sort of like what you think. Is she mad or bad? You know, because there's no doubt that Kim had serious mental problems. But this meeting that the mother set up for Kim. And the psychologist they didn't find anything wrong with her they found no mental problems with her at all so that's because
0: she was a good actress she She just told them what they wanted to hear
1: exactly yeah that's what i think too so anyway whether these murders would have taken place if kim had not walked into a classroom at the sir john gleed school just as lucas markham was launching a chair across the classroom because the two then became instant soulmates. Oh, gee, Whether that Well, whether her attraction to him, because he threw a chair straight across the classroom, we'll never know. But from then on, they were inseparable. In fact, they were so inseparable that fellow pupils said it was creepy. They would only huddle together and talk to each other. They'd have nothing to do with anybody else. They only spoke to each other it was kim who said that she hated her mother and she would like her and her sister dead and it was lucas who offered to kill them for her and he did and afterwards they had a bath had sex got under the duvet on the sofa and ate ice cream while they watched twilight films Now, there's many times they must have gone upstairs to the toilet, passing by the blood-soaked bodies of the victims, laid there on the beds, but that didn't seem to bother them at all. In the interviews they gave to the police, seasoned detectives were shocked, mostly with Kim's statements, talking about her sister, Katie. She calmly said, I thought it would be better for my sister to die too. I was not killing my sister out of anger, and I miss her. But I was excited about killing my mother and was looking forward to it. This is just yeah.
0: upsetting and it's disgusting. And I think about people like this who have some nebulous issue with somebody else and they're just mad. They just don't like them. They're mad at them. And now that person has to be dead. Well, yeah. maybe you could just get through the next couple of years and then you can go off on your own and you never have to see her again. But you don't get to just kill people because you're mad at them. And then you don't get to make the decision that your sister won't want to live after the death of her mother and then kill her too.
1: No, I mean, I personally think she wanted rid of both of them. She didn't like the way that they interacted together and got on so well. And she was jealous of that fact and she wanted wanted away with them. But I do think this girl is not just bad, she's mad. Yeah. I, I do think that she is, I don't think, there we'll be able to rehabilitate her. But I mean, we will not know, will we? Well, we probably will know if they, you know, if they do eventually send her out. But at the moment, in this story, as I'm reading it and telling it, unfortunately, I don't see that. You don't get to hear a lot about what Lucas had to say for himself. Lucas okay. seemed very quiet on it all, you know. But Kim had a lot to say. So
0: he you just know. had anger issues, probably, and then he latched onto this girl and thought he could go kill her family for her, and then he'd still have this girl. Maybe her psychopathic influence on his anger issues is where the nuclear warhead
1: came together. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do think that he had anger issues of, some, you know, that, but I think he wanted to please her. Yeah. You know, he he actually wanted to please her. And if that pleased her, killing her mother and killing her sister, was going to gain him favour with her, then, you know, I'll do it for you. Right. I mean, and as I say, if they had never met, it may never have happened. Yeah. If she hadn't met
0: him, she might have just fumed and stewed, but I don't think she would have killed her mother and her sister by her own hand. It doesn't sound like she had the stomach
1: to do it. No. And also, I think that when she had her a panic attack or whatever and said she couldn't do it. She didn't say to Lucas, did she? Don't you do it either. Leave her. Right, right. She still let him go and do it. Yeah. I mean, she goes on to say, we felt very laid back about it. Neither of us felt that bad about it at all. This is
0: ridiculous. Yeah. The fact that they're planning this because with these young kids, they always think, oh, well, we'll just kill my family and then we can be together forever. You're not going to be together forever. You're never going to see each other again, except maybe in court. Yeah, and so that's, I think that's it was when all for did. nothing. It was for yeah. nothing.
1: And those enrage me. It enrages me as well because I mean, you know me. I normally cover very old murder cases. hmm So I mean, I do Victorian cases and things like that. So when I do one that's 2016, which is what seven years ago, you know, they disturb me. The whole thought of that, I think I can sort of like, because I do old cases where everybody's died and everything like that, I can disassociate myself from it. Right. But being in, you know, only seven years ago and realizing what these people did, to this, it's just, I find it very distressing, Yeah. you know, but yeah. And because it's, you've got a daughter
0: who went through that age. I've got yeah. a daughter who went through that age. I don't think I was full of rage in my early teens like that. Not a lot of teens anymore go through just rage, period. It's like the world has put so much weird pressure on them that we don't have. You know, like there's online bullying and then there's cyber stalkers and all this stuff that we didn't have to deal with when we were kids. But now they're trying to channel all of this bad stuff that happens from the outside and they just get enraged and they just don't know what to do with that. And I think now looking back, it's like, well, could that have happened to someone that I knew? If the circumstances had been different, could any of us have done a thing like this? And I'd like to think the answer is no, because yeah. I'm not particularly murderous in my heart. But, you know, we all get pushed to a point where we do things that we regret or that we we know we shouldn't have done. And we owe somebody an apology. I don't know if I'm just blabbering on and making no sense. No, but...
1: it doesn't make sense. I honestly think that peer pressure now is so intense to kids today with social media and the bullying that goes on online and things like that. And I, for one, I'm really glad I was a kid when I was. Me too. Before all this mobile phones, Facebook, video games, all this stuff came along, I'm so happy I was a child when going out to play was as good as it got. Yeah,
0: I grew up in the same time.
1: <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm the one who dragged us off onto this tangent. So please continue. No, fantastic. I think these things need to be said, you know, sometimes, because I think kids have got it bad. I wouldn't want to be a kid now. I really no, wouldn't. No, I wouldn't so, either. You know, so there's a well-known Scottish criminologist who has described Kim and Lucas as demonstrating a high level of psychopathy, pointing out Kim's egocentric belief that she was doing her mother and sister a favour by killing them. She said, my mum doesn't have to deal with me being suicidal anymore. And she doesn't have to wake up worrying every morning to see if I'm still alive. While killing Katie, she said, her going through the heartbreak and just all the emotions and stuff, it would have killed her. So I killed her.
0: I'm such a hero for what I did. I saved them all of this trouble.
1: She saved the day by murdering them or having them murdered. Unbelievable. Well, that's not what the jury thought. At Nottingham Crown Court on the 10th of October 2016, Lucas Markham pleaded guilty to murder and Kim Edwards pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Hmm. That didn't work because on the 10th of November, both Kim and Lucas were both found guilty of murder. and sentenced to 20 years in prison. That seems so little. It got even worse because in 2017 their sentences were reduced to 17 and a half years. (sighs) On the 9th of June 2017, despite efforts to keep their identities secret, a High Court judge ruled they could be publicly named. But before then, they had been anonymous. Okay. So they now hold the dubious record as the youngest double murderers in the UK's history.
0: Wow, that's horrifying.
1: It's a horrifying case. I remember it so well because, of course, I I don't live in Lincoln. I haven't lived in Lincoln for 40 years. But of course, things get passed on to me. And as soon as I got passed on to me, I started buying the papers and reading about it. And horrific. Well, your daughter probably wasn't a lot older than them when this happened. She
0: was probably just a few Uh, years ahead of them. And you thought, oh, holy crap. These kids are almost the same age as my daughter and look what they've done. So it's horrifying. Is it across the board thing that under a certain age, their names cannot be released? Or is it that it has to be a special order in any case? Anybody that's classed as a child. No, I mean as adults too. No,
1: no, adults are named. Adults are named. If you're under a certain age. Normally, if you're classed as a child, the names are withheld. But in what they think are really serious murders, like Jamie Bulger's murder and things like that, because remember, Jamie Bulger was murdered by two young boys. The names are given out because they then put them in the press. Of course, they were trying to stop Lucas and Kim being named. But in the end, the High Court judge decided it was in the public's interest to know who this pair was.
0: It seems to me once they've been convicted, their name should be released regardless because the public has a right to know that this kid that wants to babysit my daughter was convicted of murdering her mother and her sister. I mean, obviously she won't be a kid when she gets out of prison, but I don't know. I just think that that's questionable wisdom to hide their names unless someone specifically allows them
1: to be released. You see, there's a thing in this country that unless normally if you're a murderer, you are sentenced to life. Yeah. But life is just it it doesn't mean anything, really, because then it goes to a judge who says you are sentenced to life. But he thinks that they should serve 26 years, say, before they're eligible for parole. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, I don't believe that's been said. So with good behavior, they could be out in ten years. So they have no minimum sentence. No, this is the thing because it's like because it's seventeen and a half years. If they oh, I'm behave sorry. themselves, that part. if they behave themselves, they could be out in ten years. If they act up and cause
0: trouble in prison, then they can hold them yeah. beyond the original minimum.
1: Well, not only that, if they think they haven't been rehabilitated. Okay. So... So they're just making an advisory thing that you shouldn't be eligible for parole until you've signed, say, 26 years. That 26 years come up and then they have to make a decision on whether the person, male or female, is eligible for parole. They have a parole hearing. And if they say, no, he's not shown anything of remorse or anything at all, and that they keep him in. All right. That makes sense. But, well, it doesn't always work because a parole board in this country... It's called a board, but it can be between one person on its own and three people. And those people are allowed to be anonymous. Yeah. Judges aren't anonymous. Lawyers aren't anonymous. Witnesses aren't anonymous. But the parole board that can say yes or no about whether a person is still a danger to society can let them out. And they don't get any publicity at all. They are completely anonymous. And then, then people come out and go and rape or murder somebody else within two or three months. And they never get held accountable for it. Right. Well, and I'm sure that there are cases where
0: they are making what the public would agree with as far as their decision-making. But when it's controversial and the public doesn't want that person to be released, I could see where those parole boards would probably get threats and stalked and kidnapped and bad things could happen to them. But they... I don't know. It just seems maybe I'm just heartless. No, I, I, am. <laughs> I think that if you have done a horrible crime like these two kids did, I don't care if you're 14. Exactly. You are never going to be a normal person and you are never going to go into society. It reminds me of Carla Homolka. She's Canadian and she and her boyfriend, they were the Ken and Barbie killers, they call them. Oh, I
1: remember. Yeah. Can't
0: remember his name. She's released and she changed her name. She got married. She's got a little family. She tried to join the PTA. Somebody on the PTA knew who she was, and they got her thrown off. Didn't want her working as an assistant at the elementary school. Well, I can get that. Why should they get to change their names and go start a brand new life and foist themselves upon unsuspecting people? I don't know. It's
1: outrageous how little they really have to pay for their crimes. It's the same here with Robert Thompson and John Venables who killed Jamie Bulger. They're out. Ugh. They're out. They're out. Change of identity. Nobody knows who they are doing their thing. I mean, the first person ever to be caught by DNA, Colin Pitchfork, who murdered two young girls in this country. He's out. You know, That's is what I'm saying. You know, the name Pitchfork. like Pitchfork, they should have seen that coming. Yeah. Terrible. I mean, he, he's out. He's only 60-something. He's done his 30 years. McGeevy, he killed three children and then put them on the spikes of a you oh know, god spikes of a fence and he's out. <sighs> so yeah, and these are all parole board, you know. So anyway, I want my murderers punished. I want them to be punished for the murder they committed.
0: I agree with that, and and it's not that I don't think that rehabilitation is a nice goal, but in the U.S. we have very little as far as actual rehabilitation efforts towards prisoners, we just stick them in there and they eat their three meals a day and they sleep in their little cots and some of them get to train shelter dogs, but there's very little going on that's actually trying to rehabilitate them. They're yeah. warehousing them and waiting to sit them back out. Yeah. And they're worse when they come out most of the time than they were when they went in. So anyway, that was a really terrible story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah sorry well you you did want me to be the bad guy i did
0: week. want you to be the bad guy
1: i mean it's a terrible thing but hopefully i succeeded in the brief
0: well i know that you have listened enough times to know the things that bailey has put me through so what you put me through is about equivalent to what bailey would put me through oh, no
1: I, I don't think i do it as well as bailey bailey has the whole get your voice croaking and everything and the <laughs> dog you know can think you're gonna burst into tears i don't think i went that far
0: No, I never saw you cry, not even once. (laughs) That was a very well-told story, Lyndon. I'm sorry I interrupted you so many times, but I
1: I uh, had to say what I had to say.
0: (laughs) All right, so I am going to try and bring us back up a little bit. Although, you know, it's funny how many times I have to preface my upper story with, (laughs) well, it's kind of an upper story. It's like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. It's never quite as upper as we would like for it to it's be. It's always like a, a double-edged sword, yeah? That's exactly yeah, what no. I'm trying to say. Funny that you brought us all the way up to 2016 because you normally do stories from much further in the history. But my story's from 1952.
1: This will be right up my street, then, won't
0: it? <laughs> okay, and we are in San Francisco, California. On the surface, Carl E. Brown was a very eligible bachelor. He was fairly handsome, tall, knew how to dress well... He was a moderately successful San Francisco attorney. He was politically connected and was a former president of the Young Democrats of California. And at 43, he was well known in the San Francisco area. He was considered somewhat prosperous, but he was also known to have many clients in the red light areas of San Francisco. In 1950, he was trying to win over the father of his secretary because Dorothy Zentner's father was a wealthy produce merchant and Carl was an opportunist. Dorothy only worked for Carl because she was sweet on him, and might have also been hoping for a proposal. Florence Dutro Richardson was the daughter of a prominent rancher, and she had procured quite a few properties that in the 1950s would have been called places of doubtful reputation. Some went so far as to imply that Florence herself had grown her independent wealth through sex work. But time has lost any evidence for or against that theory, and to me, it doesn't matter. Her money was her money, and she was a pretty savvy businesswoman. But in addition to that, she was high-spirited, fun, just a hoot to be around. She could hold her own. She liked what she liked, and she didn't take guff from anybody. She was still pretty at 46 and happy in her life. Florence had one son with her husband, Roland Richardson, who was a longtime legal client of Carl Brown, the bachelor we talked about at first. Over the years, Carl had also handled legal affairs for Florence, too. When Roland had died in mid 1950. His death left her a wealthy widow, both from his estate, but also from her own holdings. As soon as Roland had died, Carl had set his sights on Florence and her assets. They soon seemed destined to marry, leaving poor Dorothy out in the cold. But almost from the start, Carl frequently asked for cash loans from Florence, who could easily afford to help him. He quickly started diving right into her affluent lifestyle and spending far more freely than he could in the past. He was money-reckless. He had somehow managed, within a few months of their courtship, to convince her to change her will to leave almost everything to him. Before they were even legally wed, he was, for all intents and purposes, the sole beneficiary with some minor property assets set aside for her son. In February 1952, the two flew to Honolulu and got
1: married. All I want to say is because I am a firm fan of Judge Judy. I watch Judge Judy all the time. And I'm always amazed by how these women give all their money to these useless men. And I can't get my head around it. Lyndon,
0: that's why I'm single forever now. (laughs) I'm tired of being a sugar mama.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I absolutely love Judge Judy, right? This seems to be, I don't know whether it's all over the world, because I only ever come across it in America, where these highly intelligent, beautiful women give these unbelievable layabouts, loads of their money, and then go to Judge Judy to ask for some of it back.
0: You know, I don't, I don't know if it's the same everywhere in the world, but it seems like a lot of men in the United States who are kind of useless, like the men you were just describing, the layabouts, they somehow get it in their minds that, well, I deserve to be with a supermodel who's rich. And then somehow that confidence wins women over. And then you realize, oh, no, I should have listened yeah. to the red flags. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It happens very frequently. And I'm always sad when that happens.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Anyway, get on the soapbox.
0: (laughs) I like it when you get on the soapbox. (laughs) Judge Judy's now celebrating her 192nd birthday. Okay, so Florence and Carl had just flown to Honolulu and got married. During the honeymoon, Carl was already strutting around like an alley cat. Pretty bold choice for a honeymoon, but Florence held all the cards, and this was not acceptable treatment in her eyes. She literally shredded the will in front of him to make her point, just ripped it to bits right in front of him. He got the message and toned down his tomcatting. He needed to get back in her good graces so she would put him back in the will. Once they had returned to San Francisco, they each tended to their own financial affairs. Florence was still interested in the nightclub life and potential therein for good income. Florence was the owner and operator of the Victoria Hotel at 896 Eddy Street in San Francisco as well as several other investment properties. She ran all aspects of this tenant hotel, including collecting rent payments and evicting those who fell behind. One such character was a young Navy veteran named Victor Stoner, whom many called Lucky. I'm not gonna refer to him as Lucky, I'm gonna call him Victor Stoner. He was thrown out of the Victoria when he was 21 for non-payment of his rent. Florence then took possession of the clothing he had in the apartment and gave all of the clothing to Carl. I kind of chuckle at her throwing this guy out of the hotel and I kind of get that he owed her money so she kept his possessions. Yeah. But to give a freeloader's clothing to your brand new husband, <laughs> that strikes me as kind of bizarre, especially since they describe Carl as very, very tall and Victor is not so tall. So there's <laughs> Carl, the new husband, walking around in these pants that go up halfway, oh you know, my God. halfway up his calves. But that was
1: funny to me. I'm just wondering, with all her money, why is she giving him somebody's old clothes? I have no idea. I have no yeah. idea. Or or maybe it was a
0: backhanded gift. You yeah. Know? She's like, yeah. well, I saw what you pulled on the honeymoon, dude. So you're getting some secondhand <laughs> dirty clothes I found <laughs> in an eviction apartment. Oh, my God. <laughs> but Victor Stoner was also a talented mechanic. He had been in the Navy and he learned a trade there and had been hired to perform many handyman tasks around the hotel up until he had been evicted. Feeling he was due money for past work, He walked uninvited into Florence's apartment one day, thinking he would help himself to the bundles of cash he knew she had hidden throughout her apartment. But Florence had arrived back home while he was still there. He later said she had flirted with him, came on to him, suggested that she was just what a young guy needed. She could fix him right up. At 46, she was probably right. (laughs) but She probably was. (laughs) <laughs> he had been married three times already by age 21 with a baby that had arrived after he had already walked out on the third wife. He was embarrassed and flustered by the attention, although there are other reports that he accepted the offer, but we're just going to leave it at that. And he left the apartment without further incident, also without the money that he had come there hoping he was going to go home with. Shortly after his eviction, The police had noticed him just wandering around and started shadowing him, assuming that he must be up to something. They picked him up, and one of Victor's girlfriends suggested, after he had been in jail for 30 days on basically no charge, that he should reach out to an attorney that she knew named Carl Brown to take on his case and get the police off of his back. Neither Carl Brown nor Victor Stoner had any inkling that Carl was now the proud recipient of Victor's confiscated clothing because neither of them had ever brought up Florence. But the two were now intertwined in this way and about to become entwined in
1: other ways. I'm a bit confused. Carl, who is the husband of the lady. Yes. Is now gonna become the guy's lawyer. Who's been thrown. Well, surely that can't, that's a conflict of interest. Well, I don't think they knew.
0: I don't think that Carl knew that Victor had been thrown out by Florence because he had already been in jail for like 30 days or something by the time Carl came on the case. All oh, right. So he was called in just to get him out of jail on this nothing charge. And so he took him on as his client. And then they started to get to know one another. Right. When they entered their business relationship, they had no idea they had any personal connection. Oh, right. Okay. Despite their 20 plus year age difference, the two men actually became friends. And on Victor's 22nd birthday, Carl took him out to celebrate. Another man was also there, and his name was Joe Tenner. Tenner, a really questionable character who had past convictions for many vice crimes, including one that they called white slavery, but now referred to as sex trafficking of unwilling people, an attempt to deport him in 1951 had been unsuccessful because no other country would accept him. And his original name was Tenenbaum. So I think he was originally from Germany or Austria, but they wouldn't take him back when they tried
1: to throw him out of the country. There's a film there, The Family Tenor Box, Royal Tenor Box, yeah. <laughs> it was a while ago. I'm surprised you remember that. I can remember a lot further back than that. <laughs> Me too.
0: Tenor was complaining that night about Florence, just randomly. He was just in there. He knew that Florence was Carl's wife, but he didn't know that Victor had anything to do with Florence. So Tenor's just kind of bitching about Florence to her husband. He told the other two how she'd invested in his nightclub scheme, but then doubting his trustworthiness, She had asked for her money to be returned, and he was really bitter about this. Carl and Joe and Victor all began to realize they each had their individual issues with the same woman. Carl and Victor, seemingly bonding over this shared aggravation with Florence, kept getting even closer. Carl set Victor up in an apartment that was owned by one of his side chicks and bought him some new clothes, (laughs) ironic, (laughs) to make up for the ones that ended up in Carl's closet. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. <laughs> also, Carl took Victor on a sexy vacation to Tijuana, Mexico. And where do you suppose the money for this apartment and this trip came from? Well, when they got back from Tijuana on September 20th, 1952, Florence was furious. Carl tried to pass it off as a business trip, but she was pretty smart and she didn't fall for it. She knew what they'd been down there doing and they weren't fooling her. And she was sick of Carl's prowling around with other women. He was on some pretty thin ice. The newspapers of the 1950s called all of these three men, Carl, Victor, and Joe Tenner, tenderloin characters, which I had to look up. Basically, it refers to people in businesses of questionable reputation and engaged in illegal or just corrupt practices. (laughs) A little bit seedy. And it seems like an accurate description of all three of these men. Victor was becoming something of a fixer for Carl. He knew people who could do things. He was ethically flexible, so anything Carl needed from him, Victor was just more than happy to do. In fact, Victor was telling his friends about his rich Uncle Carl. In return, Carl gave Victor a green Cadillac, and Carl drove down to San Diego with his old Navy friend Calvin Brown. Not to be confused with Carl Brown, and they were also of no relation. The two of them, Victor and Calvin, spent two weeks in San Diego doing whatever shady characters do and returned to San Francisco on October 6, 1952. They ran around town in the green Cadillac, saw some movies, went to a few stores. At one of the stores, Victor Stoner purchased some ammunition for his 38. Then they left the green Cadillac behind and took a cab to the Victoria Hotel. Victor said to Calvin, You wait for me. I'm going up to collect some money for Uncle Carl. Victor then went into the building, was gone for just a few minutes, and came back down to the car. Then he directed the cab to a location in Chinatown, where Victor changed out of the clothes he had been wearing, and afterwards, Victor and Calvin got into a different automobile and returned to San Diego. And I see the look on your face. What was this stop at the Victoria about, you want to know? (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) Well, I'm telling it to you from Calvin's point of view, but what actually happened was in late afternoon, Victor had stopped to see Carl Brown at his law office at 519 California Street. Carl was working and stayed there after Stoner left. Carl had gone home earlier for an early dinner and then had returned to the office to work late, intending to stay until about midnight, or at least that was the story. Victor Stoner, after leaving Carl's office, had arrived with his friend Calvin Brown at the Victoria Hotel at 896 Eddy Street and asked Calvin to wait in the car for him. Victor was seen in the hotel by several people who remembered him from his time living in the hotel. Stoner went upstairs to Florence's apartment at 8 p.m. and knocked on her door. A neighbor saw him standing at the door as it was opened by Florence, who said to him, Oh, it's you. Stoner told Florence he had been sent to fix her television set by her husband. He went to the set and reached behind it as if to start work on the TV. He told her he needed a hand and asked her to help by bending over to hold a cord. While Florence was bent over holding the cord, Stoner reached behind the television set and grabbed a ball peen hammer that he knew would be there. He viciously bashed Florence in the head with it repeatedly. Thinking that she was either dead or close to it, he casually went back out to the car where his friend was waiting, and Stoner said to Calvin that he had, quote, Just finished up a woman. I killed her. I hit her seven times with a ball-peen hammer, and I think I killed her. Stoner then drove to a gas station to call Carl Brown, and a short time later, they met up with Carl Brown. Carl placed a phone call to his wife's apartment, and when she didn't answer, he turned to Stoner and said, I guess that's it, and gave Stoner $500 and the pink slip to another automobile. Stoner then drove back to San Diego again with his friend, Cal Brown. He had a wallet that he took ID and credit cards out of Then tore the wallet to pieces And flung them out the window on the drive south He handed all of the cards to Calvin And told him to burn them or throw them away The cards all had Florence Brown's name on them Calvin tore up the cards And threw them into a phone booth in Los Baños Which doesn't make any sense to me Why a phone booth and not a trash can But okay So he tore up the cards and threw them into the phone booth Where fragments were later recovered two months later From there, Stoner started traveling around to various parts of the country, mostly by bus. Carl Brown would wire him money, and over the next couple of months, Stoner would end up receiving a total of about another $1,000 from Carl Brown. But back to Florence. At about 9.30 p.m., an hour and a half after Victor Stoner had gone up to her apartment to supposedly fix her TV— Luella Dickens and Corinne Hatcher, two tenants in the building, had been walking up the steps of the three-story building and noticed that Florence's door was slightly ajar. Getting closer to it, they heard faint cries of help, help, coming from her apartment. They cautiously went inside, and there they saw a big pool of blood on the floor next to the television. The two women then gingerly continued back to follow the sound of the weak cries and found Florence sitting in her bed near death, and they immediately called for help. When emergency workers arrived at Florence's home to take her to the hospital, she was so delirious that she told him she had been in a terrible car crash. Of course, she had not, but it's pretty amazing that when Stoner left her, she had been in a crumpled heap on the living room floor and in bad enough shape that he thought she was dead. But somehow, this badass woman managed to get herself up. All she knew was that she had been in a terrible accident, she was hurt, and she just wanted to get to her bed and lie down. Wow. Once she arrived at the hospital, it was determined that Florence had a depressed skull fracture, meaning that broken pieces of her skull were pushing in against her brain. And to have that traumatic of an injury, he had to really have clobbered her with that ball-peen hammer. Cracking your skull and depressing pieces of your skull, that's two completely different levels of violence. So could she not remember
1: the actual attack?
0: We're coming to that, but she could not. Okay. This of course required emergency surgery to remove the pressure on her brain from the depressed bone fragments. There had been at least four blows to the top of her head and at least another one to her forehead over her left eye. And she also had a bunch of lacerations on her face, but I'm not sure where those came from, maybe from falling. She was semi-conscious upon arrival, was hurt, scared, crying for her husband, was still asking for him when he finally arrived at the hospital at midnight She, of course, had no idea that he had met with Victor Stoner after her beating. After the brain surgery, she had been unconscious for the first several days of her recovery. When Florence started to regain consciousness, she was told that she had been struck from behind, and she said she didn't know who would have hit her or, indeed, who did. She seemed to have no memory of anything from 30 minutes before she was attacked, nothing from during the attack, and nothing of the aftermath. As she became more fully conscious and her brain started to heal, during another interview with the police, she kind of remembered that Stoner had been the one to attack her. And she also expressed, quote, a tangible dread, end quote, that Joe Tenor, remember this is the third guy who had been complaining about Florence at Victor's 22nd birthday yep. celebration. But Florence knew that Joe Tenor had a bitter dislike for her. It was quite mutual, and she suspected he might have been behind the attack. She had always felt she might need to, quote, run to South America or anywhere to escape him, end quote. She knew he was a bad character, and she believed he was capable of setting up a murder. Florence spent weeks in the hospital, suffering from memory gaps and nervous relapses from the trauma. The attack had damaged nerves, causing her to lose feeling and movement in both of her arms and hands. Over the next several months, she made a lot of progress towards getting back to normal. And I think she was very lucky as far as that yeah. goes. No one at this point had even remotely suggested that her husband, Carl Brown, might have had anything at all to do with his attempt on her life. In fact, Carl was playing the doting husband. He was at her bedside every single day. Oddly, though, many times he came to visit her, not wearing his wedding ring, and Florence noticed it. He was probably coming from one of his girlfriend's houses. Carl Brown also told police that his wife had kept large amounts of cash hidden throughout the apartment because she collected the rent and then hid it away. And these people were both from the Depression era. A lot of people at that time were so distrustful of putting their money in the bank, they would just keep it stashed away at home where they could keep an eye on it, and they knew where it was. So Carl suggested this was the reason for Victor Stoner's attack on his wife. He even suggested that up to $2,000 might have been stolen, but there was not any verification that any money had actually been stolen. And in the background, he was sending money to Victor who was still on the run. The police were looking for Victor, but he stayed one step ahead of them for a while. Two months he was running free until one day the police in San Francisco received a tip that Victor Stoner was being sent a $35 money order, which he would have to show up in Spokane, Washington in person to collect. So. San Francisco investigators enlisted help from the Spokane, Washington Police Department, who lay in wait at the location where the money order was to be sent. Stoner came in to collect it and was arrested. He waived extradition to California, and so he was returned to San Francisco. Victor Stoner was picked up, and pretty quickly, he confessed. Almost in the same breath, he named Joe Tenor and Carl Brown as co-conspirators in the attempt to kill Florence. He said all three of them wanted her dead, and that Carl had offered him $5,000 and two automobiles for going through with it. Victor also told them that as part of the arrangement, a ball-peen hammer had been left for him behind the TV set. So both Carl Brown and Joe Tenner were rounded up and booked the same day on suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder. But since suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder, which is a little bit of a tongue twister, I might add... (laughs) is an offense for which bail is not allowed. Carl would have had to stay in jail at least until he went before the grand jury when it would be decided whether or not to charge him. But somehow Carl Brown's booking card was mysteriously crossed out and was changed to read conspiracy to commit felony instead of murder. And Carl Brown bailed out of jail with a $5,000 surety bond the same night. This was kind of a scandal. Because someone in the jail had clearly done Carl a favor. Yeah, or absolutely. he had called one in. I did not see that anyone had turned a similar favor for Joe Tenner, And he didn't oh. seem to be a very likable guy. So I guess he had to stay in jail the whole time. But nevertheless, Carl went home that night to Florence, who did not believe for one second that Carl could have had anything to do with this attack.
1: I knew that was good. I know. I knew she was not going to believe he had anything to do with it. Well, It you sounds don't want like to. an episode of Columbo. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I've seen now,
0: Florence knew he was a cheating gold digger, but she didn't think he was a murderous cheating gold digger.
1: Uh, no, <laughs> they never do, do they? They never do. <laughs> what was that thing that was on Netflix? Was it Dear John? Yes. Yeah, it's like it, that, isn't it? He yeah. was awful. Awful, yeah. Unbelievable. I just knew when you said that he went home, she would be like, no. <laughs> There's no way my lovely husband would do that.
0: No, he would cheat on me, he would lie, and he would take my money, but he would never he would. try to kill me.
1: <laughs> why would he need to kill me? No, no way. I've given no. him everything he can need. Yeah, exactly. I can't <laughs> even understand why he wants to kill her. Why would he want to kill her? It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, it's always ridiculous when somebody wants and to kill And you just someone. know that these other two are going to drop him right in it. As soon well, as they get caught, because they're not very bright, they're going to drop him right in it. We shall see. Oh, here we go. <sighs> My nose is kind of stuffy, so my throat's getting a little weird. Is it
0: pollen? It is. I'm allergic to everything in Georgia, but I moved to Georgia and I have a stuffy nose all summer long.
1: I don't mind. You sound like the velvet fog, like you normally sound.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shortly before the three men were scheduled for arraignment, Victor Stoner turned a 180 in regards to his story. Originally, he had said all three men were equally involved. But by the end of December, he had changed his story and said that the original story was a hoax and he had been coerced by the police into implicating both of the other men. He now declared that neither Joe Tenner nor Carl Brown had any part in the plan and that he didn't really want to confess at all anymore. He said Carl was his friend, really good person, a kind person, and he didn't do anything wrong at all. Notice he didn't say anything nice about Joe Tenner. But by this time, Victor had given more than five confessions. He's just slightly different than the one before. But no one believed this new retraction at all. They all knew it was crap from the very first time he said it. On New Year's Eve, 1952, Carl Brown and Joe Tenner both pled not guilty, and Victor Stoner pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Stoner claimed that he had been treated multiple times as a psychopathic patient. But then also claimed that he had retracted the involvement of Carl Brown and Joe Tenor because his conscience demanded it. Mm, those two things seem to be exclusive of one another. I don't think psychopaths have consciences. Stoner also had anchor issues in the jail and kept managing to get himself put into solitary. Apparently, when people tried to wake him up for the normal jail routine, he would wake up throwing hands at <laughs> like bunch of people. <laughs> he had temper tantrums and he would try to fight people who commented on his case. Every week or two, newspaper stories were published about his bad jail behavior. So he's just kind of a rotten kid the whole way. During the trial, Calvin Brown, the friend who was in the car while Stoner attacked Florence, said that a second attack had actually been planned while she was still in the hospital for the purpose of finishing the job. He testified that Carl had told Stoner to travel down and wait in Mazatlan, Mexico, and wait down there until he could get Florence transferred to a care center there, where Stoner would have more access to kill her once and for all. He testified that the $2,000 that Carl Brown told the police might have been stolen had actually been given to Florence early the morning she was attacked, and that Victor Stoner was supposed to go find that and take that as part of his payoff. But Florence was very good at hiding her nest eggs, and Stoner could only find $6. Stoner was also supposed to not leave any reason for people to go into Florence's apartment. Because Carl was supposed to find her dead body when he returned home at midnight after supposedly working late. But Victor had failed to close the apartment door all the way, leading to the neighbors finding her at nine thirty PM, which greatly increased her chances of survival. And if she had laid there until midnight, there's a good chance that she would have died and not been able to be saved. Carl Brown apparently never got angry or upset at Victor Stoner for not finishing the job, but he did make the comment, quote, It's too bad she didn't die. It would have been so easy for you to put my knife through her. My knife was on the dresser.
1: Wow. Yeah. Why did he even bother hiding a hammer if there was a knife on the dresser? Why didn't he just say, go in there and use the knife that's on the dresser? I think that she wouldn't have let him in
0: if she hadn't had an excuse for him to come into the apartment. All right. Because she had already evicted him. She didn't have any reason to let him in there. And she'd already seduced him once, apparently. So for him to just show up at her door... She did seduce him. I don't know if she did, but... But do you think she did? I believe she probably flirted with him. Because in the newspapers, they talked about, you know, he was a handsome young man. Yeah. So I I think that maybe she did, but I don't have any proof of that one way or the other, you know. Also, testimony to establish motive was finally introduced. I mean, we can make guesses, right? We're not dumb. An obvious one, Earl Brown had a girlfriend. Actually, he had many girlfriends, but the main one was named Sharon Davis, and she lived in an apartment house that he owned. He also had quite a few other girlfriends that he had just never stopped seeing when he married Florence. The jail had documented that Carl Brown had received 25 visits from Sharon Davis alone in the first seven weeks of his being held at the jail. That's 3.57 visits per week. There was also testimony about arguments that the couple, Florence and Carl, had had over other women Carl had been stepping out with. So Carl was a womanizer, and he resented the fact that Florence just wasn't going to turn a blind eye about it. And it was surely salt in Florence's wounds that Carl's defense was paid for by Dorothy Zentner, the loyal secretary whose father was the wealthy fruit merchant who had hoped to marry Carl before he had redirected his attention towards Florence. A second motive was that Carl Brown and Joe Tenor constantly talked about wanting to buy a yacht and go cruising the high seas on it, but they needed the large sums of Florence's money in order to be able to do that. So it sounds to me like they're just a couple of dumb young kids talking about big dreams that they're never going to realize. I'm sure you remember the honeymoon spat where Florence had shredded the will. She had reinstated him in the will when they returned to San Francisco, but because she was constantly fighting with Carl over her money and what he wanted to do with it, she decided again to take him out of the will entirely, because she saw that his motive was to marry her for her money. She later said that Joe Tenner had threatened her after this, and in the interest of her own personal safety, she felt it best to add Carl back into the will, but only for half of her estate. It was claimed in the trial that the murder plot was generated during Carl's brief period of disinheritance. So when she had cut him out the second time, he saw all of his yacht dreams and the future life of leisure going up in smoke, and he wanted to make her pay, so he's just mad about that. After nearly four months of trial, exceedingly long for that time in history, Joe Tenner was acquitted on both charges. There just wasn't any real evidence linking him to this conspiracy. Carl Brown and Victor Stoner were both found guilty of the conspiracy to commit murder and assault with deadly weapons charges. Both were sentenced to life in prison, but were spared the death penalty. Stoner went berserk after the verdicts were read because a photographer tried to photograph his mother's reaction to the verdict. After he was brought back under control, he wept bitterly. Apparently forgot the whole reap what you sow thing. I find it amazing that somebody can do what he did and then act like he's the victim in all this. Oh, this is terrible what you're doing to me. Yeah. Poor victim.
1: (laughs) Poor victim. Yeah,
0: (laughs) victim stoner, by the way, (laughs) was later assessed in his sanity hearings, and he was found to have been sane at present and during the crime. So he was sent to San Quentin. But midway through the trial, and I saved this kind of for the end. At the end of February 1953, so it was about a month into the trial at the time of this, after hearing all the testimony implicating her husband in lying, cheating, attempting to have her murder, and trying to get her money, Florence Dutro Richardson Brown filed for divorce from Carl Brown. She also filed a separate lawsuit asking to be repaid the $22,500 that Carl had taken from Florence for safekeeping. Florence's reason for the divorce suit was listed as extreme cruelty, and although she made no mention of the murder attempt during her divorce hearing, Florence testified that he had been abusive and cruel in other ways, and we know some of those, including one time he had picked her up and thrown her over the headboard of the bed, and that sounds... Kind of bad to me
1: Sounds but, horrific,
0: yeah. but the whole experience had really opened her eyes since prior to this trial she had supported her husband's claims of innocence that he was just being railroaded in the end florence had recovered in most ways physically mentally and as an emotional victory she was finally rid of carl her divorce was granted just over a year after the attack had taken place and the judge rescinded any rights of carl brown to any of florence's property but when carl filed for consideration of a new trial in 1955 He was bluntly denied. The judge told him he was guilty as could be. (laughs) And the same thing happened again in 1956. So both of his appeals were denied. Florence's bad luck wasn't quite over. In April 1954, the year following the trial and her divorce, the Victoria Hotel suffered a massive fire that destroyed the apartments of 70 residents. Wow. So Florence's story seems almost fictional. In The Three Clowns Who Came Into Her Life, like you said, it could have been a movie. And nearly stole her life from her, tried to steal her property and her money from her. Because this was such a convoluted case, and because this murder attempt was such a complete failure, this whole case was nicknamed around the country at the time as the case of the lively corpse. (laughs) And that is the story of our survivor, Florence Dutron
1: Richardson Brown. I'm amazed that she made a complete recovery. I am too. Well, they managed to remove that bit of skull I, that was in her brain. I don't know if they
0: removed it or if they glued a frame over it to hold it in place so it could heal. I, I don't know. But I know these days, if you lose pieces of your skull, they will actually put titanium or something in there to reform that part of your skull. If your bones are damaged too yeah yeah too much to
1: let them heal on their own. But she was a pretty tough lady. It was a tough cookie. But I wonder what it was when she actually got it into her head that, yeah, my husband did do this. Yeah. I mean. Sinking feeling. Yeah, because it just seems like you hear it all the time, don't you? No, it couldn't have been my husband, no He loves me. Yeah, for sure. I presume they're all dead now.
0: I could not find anything. Their names are not uncommon enough to be able to pin it down.
1: We don't know whether Carl and that died in prison or whatever. We don't know that. And no. I tried to find that, but it's just not. But, I mean, they, they would be dead by now anyway, wouldn't they? I would imagine. He
0: yeah. was probably born in maybe 1910. Uh, yeah. Either that or he's a sly 113-year-old now.
1: I'm glad if he was a 100-and-something years old. I doubt if he'd be still a womanizer that he was. <laughs> but Well, I saw pictures of him. I didn't find him particularly handsome. Well, you know, that's what I'm saying. Handsome in them days was a lot different to handsome in these days. It
0: was. I think their standards were a lot lower because women were just looking for security. They were willing to put up with whatever they got just to not have to worry about where their next meal was coming from.
1: Women could be choosy now.
0: They can be. I think a lot of them are not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of women don't like snorers.
0: (laughs) A lot of men don't like snorers. Don't be judging, man. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a really interesting story. I wonder if anybody died in the fire. They did not make it sound like anybody died in the fire.
1: Right, that's good then.
0: But most of the apartments were destroyed. And I'm pretty sure that building is no longer there. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good
0: story. Thank you.
1: Your story too. Yeah. It isn't something that I normally dabble in, modern day murders. But yeah. as it was you, as I got an SOS from True Crime b <laughs> Well, I, I would like to, to do it again sometime. This Absolutely. I really enjoy recording with you. No, that's great. I really enjoyed every minute of it. It was great. you never know okay so now that because I told you the other day didn't I you sounded very sad I was sad I was like oh
0: bless (laughs) well I wanted to do it and I wanted to do a transition episode but we just couldn't pull it off her schedule just it didn't work and I didn't even want her to do a story for it I just wanted her to come on and kind of say, hey, guys, I'm going to be around once in a while, yeah. once in a blue moon, yeah. but I'm not going to be here every week anymore. And I wanted her to be able to deliver that herself. But it just, it didn't work out. And in fact, she really wanted to sit in today with you, but she knew she was going to have to get up and leave in the middle of it. And so she decided to yeah, just let yeah. it be.
1: It would have been nice to see her, but they, you know, I'm sure. I mean, I'll tell you now, I mean, I know you're hoping to do a lot of collaborations, yeah? Well, Perfect. I didn't
0: think the solo episode went badly, but that's just it's not good. our format. It's not our format, you know?
1: Right. That's right yeah and i agree with that i think the format is great you two (laughs) were so good together the way that you bounce off each other and know how to sort of like talk to each other and that it was really really good but you know there are some really nice podcasters out there will be quite interested next weekend i'm recording with carmen from live laugh murder we're buddies good will it be going out on friday like normal carmen's will that be out on a friday will it they'll all be on fridays they'll still be on fridays because i would hate it if you stopped doing it But a blast it's been brilliant
0: I really don't want to stop doing it. Even if I went to once a month because it was just too difficult. Yeah. I would rather go to once a month than just die. Because this was a really meaningful thing to do with Bailey. Yeah. And doing it without her feels weird. Yeah. But she doesn't want it to die either. I mean, we talked about it the other day. And she's like, you know, we put so much blood, sweat, and tears into this. Literal tears. <laughs> You've heard <Yes>. our episodes. <laughs> And she, yeah. she's got story ideas that she still wants to look into, and she'll come back around at some point and pop in.
1: No, it'd be worth it, though. I mean, I used to follow a, a lady called Stolen From Me with Lindsay. I've heard of that. Uh, and we started off about at the same time, but we became really good friends, and she really hit it big, you know, overnight. But she gave up podcasting and went onto YouTube. The fresh, it burnt her out. Yeah. She disappeared. We still text each other occasionally, but she's moved on, you know. That's She, uh,
0: bad.
1: she packs it in because it just got too much.
0: That pressure makes it not
1: fun. Once I
0: decided I was going to keep doing it, I started wrapping my head around it and it became more manageable. If I can't get it out every other week on the dot, it'll be the third week. I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm one human with, an, with a demanding job and a lot going on. I'm renovating yeah. my house and i got a cat that
1: screams. It's all about, I mean, I've got so much going on, you know, with the YouTube channel, on max old Yellow Valley with Bird. At bedtime, I've always, ever since I started podcasting, it's always been a hobby. And if it became something I was trying to make money out of, I wouldn't enjoy it anymore. I've got a very loyal band of people. Oh yeah. Who listen to me and watch me, so it wouldn't matter. I just keep going. It, it no makes the odds to me. I enjoy it. I have so many lovely comments from people like war veterans in America.
0: You always take the high road on things. I mean, you've made some cheeky comments in some of your episodes that I just giggled at. But you're never nasty about anything. You never ridicule people. You never sling mud or...
1: Sometimes I need reminding to get off my high horse. Not for me just giving my own views. Yeah, but people like right. you and they care about what your view is. They're interested in your view or they wouldn't be listening to you in particular. I do like to put a bit of, I don't know, warmth in, if I can. You know, that's why I think I like your good and bad thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> because I like that that bit when somebody actually conquers adversity and it's nice. You know what I mean? It's not all about somebody being slaughtered. We are listening to all these
0: true crime podcasts and we enjoyed I hate that word. We don't enjoy them. It's not like I'm getting joy out of listening to terrible things that happen to other people. So I don't use the word enjoy. But I appreciate those podcasts because they give me perspective on things I wouldn't have ever thought of. They might give me ideas about how I can avoid some of the things that happen to other people, how I can keep myself or my loved ones safe and things like Mm -hmm. that. But a really heavy podcast, you get to the end of it and you're just mentally and emotionally exhausted.
1: Exhausted, drained, yeah.
0: You are. And so our thought was instead of doing horrible, 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 horrible Mm -hmm. palate cleanser, (laughs) we would do a little sort of a mini palate cleanser every episode and that was the whole premise of what we did and so when we did single stories we only done those as bonus episodes except for the last one i did
1: when you haven't got a collaboration though you'll still be doing a single one won't you yeah yeah because it's just not possible for me to do two stories myself no no i mean no it's not possible i still enjoy doing it and while i enjoy doing it i'll do it but i won't be kept to any time limits if you enjoy something why why
0: would you not want to have something you enjoy just because you don't get enough of it if i can only have
1: two bites of ice cream i'm gonna have those two bites of ice cream yeah yeah well the exiled yellow belly with his team of ghostbusters me lynn my daughter Keita, her daughter hannah we're going on an all-night ghost hunt going (laughs) on a trip to whiz beach castle from eight at night until two in the morning. That sounds like a lot of fun. It should be fun because, as you know, Keita's good fun anyway, but she's a real wimp when it comes to ghosts. That's <laughs> clinging on to me, and I had to carry him down the thing. <laughs> but Lynn's got some sort of psychic ability, which it definitely she has, and her daughter has as well. So it, that should be quite funny. I shall <laughs> film whatever I can, and I shall put out a ex-old yellow belly episode about it. And then it's back to work tomorrow,
0: I'm afraid. So, everybody, this was Lyndon from Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon, and it has been wonderful to have you. And I really hope we can do this again.
1: I've had an absolute blast, Beth. You know that I love your podcast. I've listened to it for ages. i never miss an episode. Fridays, if there isn't one there, I'm not happy. And I ask you, where is the episode? So, <laughs> it's, been, it's been fantastic. We've had such a crack. We've had good fun. It's been great, and I can't wait to do it again. You have been a wonderful guest. Cannot wait to do it with you again. Thank you, Beth. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. But you might get loads of complaints and say, we want Bailey back. Well, people do want Bailey back, but that doesn't mean we can't have you too. Sorry I couldn't see you, Bailey. I was looking forward to seeing you, but I did hear you shout through the door. <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> and you heard puss too. Yeah. All right. So everybody All go right, follow Beth. Lyndon on Instagram. You
1: want to get hold of me, it's Murder at Bedside Melinda on Instagram or The Exiled Yellow Belly on Instagram.
0: I really appreciate you stepping in to guest with me today and I hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you very much, Beth. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you to all of our listeners and please go find Lyndon. Bye guys. Goodbye, everybody.
1: Ah, oh, sorry. It's caught me completely out there. If you want to give it a look. I knew she was gonna be obnoxious today. I'm sorry, Lyndon. I'm sorry about the noises that Bailey's making today, I thought she wasn't in the program. I was expecting it, in fact, knowing True Crime Puss. Well, Puss is in the house. Puss is in the house. Is (laughs) she? Sorry. Is she? All I want to know is, are we in it like True Crime B&B today? We are. you're Bailey, I have um, prepared a survivor you and ba- story. You and Bailey are the good and the bad. I want to be the ugly. <laughs> I am looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that
0: would... oh, yeah. Who's going first? You're going to go first because you're the bad guy.
1: Definitely, I am definitely the beast in this.
0: Oh, good grief. You so... and that
1: British self-deprecating humour. Is, Is that true? I don't know. I... So I've got no
0: clue what's going on at all. Well, that's awesome but I want you to repeat all that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Weird long, all the weird,
1: weirdness. This is as weird as it gets here, honestly. (laughs) 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 So presumably any rubbish gets stuck in the uh, outtakes at the end, does it? Yeah, sometimes she just completely dozes off and starts snoring in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) I save
0: all my snoring for night embraced technology over the years. If I didn't, I couldn't do my job. and That oh, would be yeah. unfortunate. So <laughs> now you're making me feel bad
1: about myself. <laughs> yeah, you should do too.
0: Serious <laughs> faces, serious faces. No, that doesn't is... look that serious. Come on, you can do better than this. <laughs> I'm being, this is my,
1: I'm sorry, this is my resting <laughs> face. <laughs> Just make, it makes my head explode. <laughs> this is as serious as it is. You've lost the place now, haven't you? I have. We all know the
0: last 10% lasts longer than the first 90%, right?
1: Sleep monitoring thingies.
0: Oh, yeah. Because I was curious if I talked in my sleep. And sometimes I do, but it's just gibberish. Kind of like when I'm recording. <laughs> <I got it. laughs> the phlegmy velvet flog today. Flog. Flog. <laughs> <Well. laughs> oh, good God. This is why Bailey and I have so many bloopers.
1: Yeah. <laughs>